Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardow. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast regarding salient appellate and constitutional law questions. This week, Professor Elizabeth Semmel, director of the UC Berkeley Law School's Death Penalty Clinic, is here to help unpack a long-awaited decision from the California Supreme Court determining the fate of a ballot initiative narrowly passed last November intended to speed up the state's death penalty appeals process. Prop 66's proponents designed the measure to ensure that death penalty appeals conclude within five years rather than the 15 or 20 years that are common under current practice. In what appears to be a carefully crafted compromise, the High Court upheld many of Prop 66's provisions, but frustrated its central purpose by deeming the five-year time limit an aspirational goal rather than a mandatory enforceable deadline. Professor Sema will take us through the split court's reasoning with Justice Corrigan penning the five justice majority, Justice Liu writing in concurrence, and Justice Cuellar dissenting. First, though, let's get into our opening briefs, a quick rundown of newsworthy appellate rulings in California and around the country. It was a busy week in the Ninth Circuit, and one free speech ruling has drawn attention and then flamed some very strong opinions. It involves a public high school football coach who sued after being fired for preying on the field after his team's games. For more on that, we've got our Ninth Circuit reporter, Nick Sonnenberg, who covered the case. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Brian. This case has gotten a good bit of, of attention. It involves a, a man, Joseph Kennedy, a high school football coach in the, the neighborhood of Seattle. He's a coach at a public high school. He's a religious man and would uh, pray after games, sometimes with players, a leading prayer. But I think later on, uh, after the, the school had asked him not to, not to lead prayers at the public school, he would pray by himself, but was nonetheless uh, disciplined for that. And so he brings suit in federal court. Uh, could you describe to me the, the type of claim he's bringing? Is he bringing a, a free speech claim, a free exercise claim? What does what his, uh, his claim look like? Well, he originally filed a suit under both the First Amendment uh, citing free speech rights, and he also brought the suit under the Civil Rights Act. What's uh, interesting to note is that the saga with Coach Kennedy was sort of a long one. Beginning in 2008, he had started leading prayers in uh, the locker room before and after games, and he had been praying after games on the 50-yard line. Um, students had actually participated on certain occasions, and members from other teams, opposing teams, would come pray with Kennedy. Kennedy said that these were sort of ongoing traditions that, that outdated him at the school, and he was continuing a legacy. Um, but but uh, in 2015, the school district asked him to stop. He complied for a while, and then... Um, and then informed them that he, he felt his, his rights were being violated. And uh, on one night, he proceeded to the 50-yard line, prayed, and several members of the audience actually jumped over fences to join him. So his, uh, his original suit uh, cited both Civil Rights Act violations and free speech violations. The majority here rules against him, finding that the, the school was entitled to discipline him for that conduct. What, what is their reasoning, and what sort of is the constitutional character of it? What, in what way do they, they address this claim? Are they talking about kind of the, the free speech elements of it, or do they get more into the establishment or free exercise type uh, claims? Well, what's interesting is that the majority opinion really only addressed free speech issues. Um, Judge Mylon Smith wrote the majority opinion. Um, and and he said that really Coach Kennedy was acting as a public employee. He was on the um, the grounds of the school. He was dressed in colors that uh, represented the school's you know identity. He was in a uniform, um, and so he wasn't acting as a private citizen. 
Um, and so they also addressed what his role as a coach was. They said he was a mentor, he was a model to student athletes, and that that mothers um, and fathers and family members were watching their children um, under his direction. And so um, he was acting as a, a public employee, and so the school district was in its rights to control um, his behavior. There's sort of a, a, a fun little development where a satanic group requested to participate in the after-game activities, and, and, and the uh, district said, no, you can't participate. The, the field is not an open forum, and so the court also noted that Coach Kennedy had special access to the court. Uh, to the field, excuse me, and so because he had special access, this, you know, this was another reason that his activity was um, that of a public employee, not a, uh, a private citizen. And so the district, again, was well within its rights to say, no, you, you can't um, partake in this behavior. As you said, the, the majority applies fully the just the, the free speech kind of constitutional construct, but the, there is a concurrence here also by Judge Smith that deals with, I think, questions related to the establishment clause type issues, right? Right. Um, Judge Smith took the time to write a separate concurring opinion. Um, none of the other judges joined him in this opinion. And he laid out why he believed that the school was also well within its rights under the establishment clause to um, request Kennedy stop participating. Um, they said that, be or he said that because he was um, acting as a public employee, people would view his activities as an endorsement from the school district, saying that they supported um, you know, the Christian faith and that, that they believed that this was an appropriate um, way to behave on behalf of the school. He also wrote a separate part of the opinion that really um, just addressed the historical uh, efforts behind the First Amendment. He talked about religious persecution in Europe and uh, discussed Hobbes and Locke and their thoughts on free free worship um, under government and how that really influenced the Founding Fathers. So he really took time to lay out why he thought there was, you know, a violation under the Establishment Clause as well. From the, the attorneys that you've spoken to while covering this case, what's the, the sense that you get among them, either in terms of whether or not the, the Ninth Circuit got this one right, uh, or whether or not folks think there's a likelihood that this is the sort of case that that might be appealed either on banc or maybe up to the, the Supreme Court level? Well, it's interesting. Um, like, like many people who lose immediately after the appeal, uh, Coach Kennedy's attorneys said they were considering all options, including on banc or a Supreme Court cert petition. But a lot of the people across the board who I spoke to said that, you know, that the court got it right on the merits. It's interesting to note that Judge Smith is viewed more as slightly more conservative um, in terms of Ninth Circuit jurisprudence, and, and he wrote the majority opinion here. Um, the fact that the court addressed free speech and not the Establishment Clause was interesting to some. I spoke to, to one professor who was saying, had the had the court addressed the Establishment Clause issue in the majority opinion, that might have made it made the case make its way to, uh, to the Supreme Court in light of their recent rulings, particularly um, a, a Trinity Lutheran, where the court has, uh, interpreted the Establishment Clause um, and saying that, you know, the uh, state could provide funds to a religious school. So, 
most most attorneys I said I spoke to said that the case would probably stay and, and would not likely be reversed. But it's um, attracted a lot of attention. Then candidates Ben Carson and Donald Trump tweeted about Joe Kennedy in 2015, uh, expressing their support. Ted Cruz invited him to a prayer rally in South Carolina during the campaign. So there are definitely um, certain you know forces behind Joe Kennedy who are who are fighting with him and, and making this a big deal. Okay, well, we'll stay tuned as the, the fight perhaps continues. Um, but for now, thanks. Uh, Nick Sonnenberg, our Ninth Circuit reporter who covered this case, being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Another Ninth Circuit case originated from much farther afield, from the shores of Okinawa, Japan, where a dispute has simmered over the placement of a U.S. Marine Corps base that plaintiffs say could endanger the Japanese dugong, a marine animal intertwined with Japan and Okinawa's heritage. At issue specifically, though, was a more preliminary matter, whether the plaintiffs there had standing to bring suit at all, and whether their claim tread impermissibly into a political question beyond the court's purview. Brian Turner, an attorney with the National Trust for Historic Preservation, who filed an amicus brief in the matter, joins us now. Mr. Turner, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for uh, having me. So you, you submitted an amicus brief here in this, this Ninth Circuit case, but before we get into the, the case, I, I did want to ask what sort of uh, work that the uh, the National Trust for Historic Preservation does and sort of how that got you guys into into this this case. Yeah, the National Trust is a private nonprofit membership organization, but we were chartered by Congress uh, originally in 1949 to facilitate public participation in the preservation of our nation's heritage and to further uh, the United States historic preservation policies. Um, we have a, a law department in, uh, based out of Washington uh, where we advocate for strong judicial and regulatory interpretations of U.S. preservation laws, and that's um, generally the National Historic Preservation Act as well as the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. Both of those statutes, and more so the National Historic Preservation Act, central to the, the case here. Um, maybe I could set up the, the background briefly. There's, as I understand, a U.S. Marine Corps base in Okinawa that needs to be moved from an increasingly more populous area to a less developed area. But the proposed site had some potential for affecting an endangered species, the Japanese dugong, uh, regarded by both the, the U.S. and Japan as endangered, sort of a relative of the, the manatee, as folks U.S. might be more familiar with with, with those. Um, a government report completed by the U.S. government in 2014 does con- conclude the effects of the, the base wouldn't be too harmful on the dugong, but uh, the plaintiffs here sue over that finding, claiming specifically a violation of that act that you mentioned, the National Historic Preservation Act, and specifically within it, Section 402. Uh, could you walk me through what the claim is and how that statute bears on this sort of case and the way folks, I think, might think of the National Historic Preservation Act, I think they might often call to mind. Uh, suits talking about cultural places and, and, and buildings is more so than the protection of, of animals. So tell me how that this claim fits underneath that statute. Yeah, right. Working for the National Trust, people often ask, uh, oh, is that buildings? You know, And I say, well, yes, but um, because there's sort of an evolved conception of what is a cultural property. And I think that's really reflected in this case. Um, just going back to the early 70s when uh, the UN uh, Convention Concerning the Protection of World Cultural and Natural Heritage, that eventually led to an amendment of the National Historic Preservation Act in 1980. And that amendment is Section 402, and it requires that federal agencies working abroad 
respect the uh, the cultural property of other nations. And in this case, uh, Japan passed a law under their sort of equivalent of our National Register of Historic Places, protecting the dugong, which uh, is uh, unarguably a cultural property significant to the Okinawan people and plays a really important role in uh, their creation stories and um, and in their traditional life ways. Um, and this this animal is threatened with extinction. There's a very just just a handful uh, left, and so uh, these kind of facts clashed when the um, the military decided to um, you know expand the the runways at Camp Schwab uh, in the northern uh, part of Okinawan Island, and uh, really could have a, a major impact on this, the feeding grounds for the manatee, these kind of eel, eel grass beds. Um, so the, you're right that the, the facts that gave rise to the case are, are sort of in dispute. Uh, the, the military said that, oh, we've We've take we've done our obligation to take into account the effects of the base on this um, this animal, this cultural property. Um, but the plaintiffs really disputed that and said that uh, that consultation process didn't involve any real consultation with them. Uh, there was no record of why or how they reached their decision that was provided to the court. So those facts are in dispute. Um, but the the case we're talking about today actually really doesn't relate to the merits. Uh, it's more the subject matter jurisdiction, you know, whether courts can actually review this. Yeah. So as you you say, this case is dismissed early on before the the court can can deal with those facts and try and figure out what exactly is going on. There's a couple grounds for that ruling. One that um, the injunctive relief sought would require the court to kind of delve into a political question, and another reason was that plaintiffs did not have standing for the declaratory relief they sought. Now, why did the district court find, perhaps specifically focusing on that that latter question of of standing, why did they find that there was no standing on that question? It seemed to relate to the the redressability um, prong of the standing inquiry, right? That's right. Um... So, just as a reminder, you know, there's three components of standing is, is that you have an in, injury, in fact, that it's fairly traceable to the action, and that some action of the court uh, could redress those uh, injuries. So, in this case, uh, the court was very concerned that it really couldn't fashion a relief um, that would make a difference in the military's construction or operation of the facility. And it relied on this... Um, this case, salmon spawning, uh, which uh, where the Ninth Circuit sort of found that in order to fashion relief in this uh, fisheries treaty case, it would ha- it would have to undo the treaty. And so I think the district court was concerned that plaintiffs were, you know, they just wanted to undo this agreement between the government of Japan and the government of the United States um, by by saying that well the base would have to be reconsidered the place. Uh, where the construction would occur would have to be reconsidered altogether. Uh, plaintiffs really disputed that, and and you know we were concerned with the implications of the ruling as well because the National Historic Preservation Act is uh, it re- true we we hope to avoid impacts to cultural properties, but there's also ways that construction and operation of facilities can be uh, can mitigate harmful effects 
and uh, and the court really didn't didn't buy that argument. Um, so, you know, th- this was uh, particularly concerning for for us because of its potential implications in other cases, um, totally outside of this particular context. Yeah, maybe we wanted to discuss a, f- a few of those. You and your organization filed an amicus brief in this matter supporting the, the plaintiffs and, and appellants, making that exact point that if this is the standing standard applied in National Historic Preservation Act cases or related sorts of conservation type cases that under the National Environmental Policy Act, um, that it would be problematic and would really blunt the enforceability or blunt the effectiveness of those statutes. Kind of a, in what context and in what ways did you illustrate that, uh, that problem that, that you described? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the, the, the line of cases for the National Historic Preservation Act, it really emphasized its procedural nature. Um, and, you know, so there's already sort of this presumption that if, if agencies go through a certain process, if they take into account, uh, that's the statutory language, if they take into account the impacts of their projects on historic properties, they've sort of done their job. And um, But there's a whole set of regulations that, uh, that operate to make sure that that process has some meaning. Um, so procedural statutes like NEPA and like NHPA aren't just sort of these empty process-based requirements, that there are certain steps that an agency needs to go to in order to figure out what's, uh, what, are, what are ways that you can avoid impacts. And you know, we see it as sort of inconsistent with Congress's concern in passing these laws uh, for agencies to sort of uh, just say that they've, they've kind of checked all the boxes. Um, so, you know, the prohibiting the standing of, of a plaintiff because, uh, well, there's nothing we can do sort of prejudges that outcome of what would happen once consultation occurs. And we, you know, we see and we can point to cases all around the country in, in a lot of different contexts where this kind of consultation requirement, the sitting down with interested parties and figuring out ways to avoid, minimize, or mitigate effects can really actually make a difference. Um, even if it's not in the construction of something, maybe it's in its operation. You know, maybe it's the times that planes fly from the runway um, as they relate to the, the times that the dugong is feeding um, and, and those sorts of things. The Ninth Circuit panel agrees with with you here. Can you walk me through their reasoning? Does it kind of map on to the arguments you presented in, in your brief? They, they saw that the claim uh, that was brought by the plaintiffs was sort of forward-looking allegation. Uh, and, and it doesn't hinge on upsetting this kind of previous agreement, the roadmap, um, which was, was this agreement between the Japanese and the U.S. government. Um, so they just didn't they didn't really buy the the district court's opinion at all. And actually, I was at oral argument for this case, and um, uh, Justice Watford, I believe it was, uh, talking with Sarah Burt, the Earth Justice Attorney who uh, argued the case, just just flat out said, I I just don't agree with you, the government's position on this. Um, So we had kind of anticipated this ruling, although, you know, it hit exactly the points that we brought up in our brief, that you can't prejudge... Uh, 
you know, a consultation process in terms of saying what is or is not possible, um, you know, it, maybe there is a possibility that nothing will change at the end of the day, but, uh, you know, the, the meaning and intent of these laws is to sit down and try to resolve the, the differences between the parties and, and uh, come to some agreement. Uh, and, you know, in this case, the, the military sort of has yet to acknowledge that their actions actually will impact the dugong. So there, there's a pretty considerable uh, point of difference between the parties. Um, so we're, you know, this the case has now been remanded, um, and I, I hope that what the government does is instead of sort of... Uh, arguing these procedural points is actually have this consultation process. Yeah, the other piece of the, this case and the other reason for its dismissal at the trial court level is the the unwillingness of the court to, to wait into what it viewed as a political question. Plaintiffs trying to get the judicial branch to tell the executive branch, the, the, the military, exactly where it could or could not put a base or in what ways it could uh, erect that, that base. But the, the Ninth Circuit doesn't buy into to that argument that this is a, a political question that it, it can't take a look at. Why, well, what is the reasoning on that question? You know, the, the political question argument sort of arose in 2014 for the first time, and that the, uh, the case has been kind of working through the courts since the early 2000s. Um, so we were a little taken aback by that decision. Um, we had never seen it before in this context. It was kind of an issue of first impression, um, which the Ninth Circuit acknowledged. Um, but, you know, they looked at the, the Baker versus Carr factors, which, um, you know, the famous 1962 case, which I think sort of has set the groundwork for analyzing political questions and just really went through each one and, and said that uh, really emphasized how complying with the National Historic Preservation Act doesn't intrude on a foreign policy judgment. Uh, and I think they they found really convincing the fact that uh, you know, this relates to um, Congress's judgment that that when we do work abroad, uh, we you know, we expect our federal agencies to respect the cultural property laws of other nations, um, and and really delved in a bit into why Section 402 was passed in the first place. Um, you know, to to really implement our our commitment at the United Nations to to respect uh, world cultural and natural heritage, um, and just you know, page thirty nine of the opinion, uh, I, I think is one of the the best points on this, uh, where Justice Murguia says, to declare the courts cannot even look to a statute passed by Congress to fulfill international obligations turns its head on the role of the courts and our core respect for a co-equal political branch Congress. Interpreting and applying NHPA Section 402 does not prevent the military from planning and building bases. It requires only that the executive take into account certain procedural obligations required by Congress before it takes steps forward. Um, so, you know, I think the court really looks at this not as a, a huge onerous burden on the military um, and just found that the district court might have overemphasized that point a little bit. Big ruling here, but the case now only just gets a chance to uh, to begin, so we'll keep an eye on it. But uh, for now, Brian Turner of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian.
In another case involving NEPA and environmental conservation, the DC Circuit issued an opinion this week that might profoundly change the permitting process for pipelines carrying extracted fossil fuels. A two-one panel ruled that the federal agency charged with reviewing and approving new pipeline projects must, as part of its review, consider the indirect downstream effects that the eventual burning of the fossil fuels carried through proposed pipelines will have, namely to what extent that the burning will increase atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases and in so doing intensify climate change. Ellie Benson argued the case on behalf of the Sierra Club and joins us now. Ms. Benson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. I would say a significant ruling clarifying the sorts of things that a federal permitting agency must take into account before approving pipeline projects uh, here at the DC panel requiring that longer range environmental impacts be be considered. Uh, maybe before we get into exactly what uh, the court said, we could talk about the process predating this, this ruling. The federal agency in charge of permitting natural gas pipelines here, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, what sort of things they, they had to take into account before giving a, a approval to a, a pipeline project? Well, FERC is supposed to take into account uh, the direct effects of the pipeline project as well as the indirect effects and the cumulative effects, and that's, you know, basic NEPA law. But uh, these massive pipelines have a lot of impacts, and FERC has tended to rubber stamp them and kind of ignore many of those impacts or downplay them. So here, for example, although the pipeline was designed to transport a billion cubic feet of day uh, of gas per day to Florida power plants, uh, FERC came up with all these excuses for why it couldn't look at the effect of burning that gas at those power plants. Uh, you know, the, the legal standard is whether an effect is reasonably foreseeable. Uh, here it's the obvious next step of transporting the gas. So their attempts to um, get out of looking at those emissions uh, we thought were uh, not justified, and the D.C. Circuit agreed. Was there any uh, case precedent that dealt with this question as to whether eventual greenhouse gas emissions would need to be considered before permitting agencies gave their okay to, to certain projects? Yeah, there's precedent uh, in various circuits, and... FERC tried to rely on some cases involving liquefied natural gas terminals uh, that where it had been found that, where the D.C. Circuit had found that uh, FERC did not have to examine the downstream gas emissions. But those cases were distinguishable because the Department of Energy was kind of an intervening agency there responsible for actually permitting the export of gas, uh, whereas here... There is no intervening agency, and FERC, when it makes its decision whether to approve the pipeline, is supposed to be considering all the pipeline's environmental impacts and weighing those against what it perceives as the benefit, uh, and then making a decision. So when it leaves out this huge piece of the equation, uh, which is the, the greenhouse gas emissions from burning over a billion cubic feet a day of gas, uh, it's really... Um, abandoning its duties under NEPA. So you argued this case before the D.C. panel. Can you describe to me the, the reasoning that the panel used and why they felt that the longer-range greenhouse gas-type effects needed to be considered by FERC before approving a, this, these pipelines? Yeah, I mean, the reasoning is actually pretty simple. It's that NEPA requires an agency to look at reasonably foreseeable direct effects, uh, sorry, and indirect effects and cumulative effects. And here, the entire purpose of the project, as stated by 
the pipeline developers was to deliver gas to Florida power plants. So these claims that that is speculative uh, just kind of are ring hollow. Um, it's the obvious next step in the process. Uh, the fact that, you know, state or federal permits might apply to those power plants, uh, that was one of the excuses that FERC tried to use. But there's very clear case law, landmark case dating back to 1971, the Calvert Cliffs case, uh, saying that doesn't matter for NEPA review. That doesn't mean that the agency can ignore that effect when it's making the decision of whether to approve the project. In, in your opinion, how, how significant of an impact will this this case have in uh, reading the, the coverage of the ruling? Um, I've seen differing views, some saying that this merely will require a, a bit more paperwork and the, the compiling of a, a larger number of statistics and figures. Um, but others have said that this is a pretty significant uh, clarification that this um, sort of thing must be considered. And just picturing it, the effects, the direct effects um, of a pipeline seem like they could potentially pale in comparison to indirect effects if you're talking about that amount of natural gas being pumped per day and then eventually burned. Um, in, in your view, how, how big of a deal is it that this sort of thing must be considered and, and known before a project is approved? I think it's very significant because, as you said, those downstream gas emissions or coal or oil burning emissions uh, can have a huge impact. And if agencies are no longer allowed to ignore that, um, that that should affect their decision making, and you know, it's not just crunching some numbers and putting that in an environmental impact statement. The court said, you know, that Sable or FERC failed to quantify the emissions here, but they also failed, as kind of a direct consequence of failing to quantify them, to discuss their significance and discuss their cumulative impact. So it's not just crunching the number and putting that in an environmental impact statement and washing their hands of it and saying we've done our duty. They have to do more than that. Um, you know, the purpose of NEPA is to look at these impacts and evaluate, you know, what the decision should be and inform the public about the full scope of impacts. Um, so that's what the D.C. Circuit has agreed now is required for these, you know, fossil fuel projects that are going to result in burning massive amounts of fossil fuel. You've mentioned the, the word speculative a couple of times. In in this context and in this case, was the argument that FERC couldn't necessarily know how much uh, natural gas would be combusted, or was the argument that it would be speculative what impacts that would have uh, on the environment? Uh, because it seems like perhaps even if the amount of natural gas emitted needs to be taken into account, that that issue of speculativeness could still come into play if the agency said, well, we, even if we identify this amount of burning, we, we still aren't sure what sort of environmental impacts we're, we're necessarily talking about. Is there still some, some something there? Well, FERC made both excuses. It said it was speculative to look at the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that would be emitted from burning the power plants, uh, burning the gas of power plants, which, you know, the court said basically FERC, you know that 1.1 billion cubic feet a day uh, is the capacity of this pipeline, and the whole purpose is to deliver it to these Florida power plants, so that's not speculative. Um, and for the climate impacts following on that, the court did ask that FERC explain on remand uh, why it's said in the past that social cost of carbon would not be an appropriate way to 
evaluate those climate impacts. Um, and if it's past statements that it would be that social cost of carbon was not a, a good enough tool for them if they still believe that. So we'll, we'll wait to see what they say on that. There is a dissent here. It's a two-one opinion, and the dissenting judge, Judge Brown, didn't seem to want to go along with this ruling as it related to the greenhouse gas issue. What was Judge Brown's reasoning here? Her view of NEPA seems to be more circumscribed and uh, kind of to the direct effects, um, not extending to indirect effects where a different permitting agency might have uh, control over the emissions. So, for example, a Florida agency might control the air permitting for a, a power plant. Um, but that, that D.C. Circuit case from 1971 that I mentioned earlier, that landmark NEPA case, kind of touched on that and said it's it's not enough to rely on other agencies, but the agency that's making the decision that will approve the project has to weigh these, you know, costs and benefits or these uh, pros and cons of the project, look at the impacts fully, even if someone else is going to be permitting it downstream. Uh, and the court also, the majority, uh, pointed out that, you know, they did look at other emissions, even though non-greenhouse gas emissions, even though, you know, other agencies are kind of in charge. So it, their logic didn't even hold there. Last one. What um, what do you expect is, is next in, in the course of this litigation? You said the case is, is remanded, but do you expect there could be a petition for an en banc rehearing? Or do you think that this is the sort of issue that might interest the, the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, so the other side has 45 days to file a petition for rehearing 45 days from the, the date of the uh, judgment. And uh, I think it's very likely that they will do so. Um, but I am hopeful that they won't be successful. And I would not be surprised if they also uh, petition for cert. But I think it's, you know, we'll wait and see what happens. Uh, well, for now, we can we can leave it there. Um, but really appreciate your time, Ms. Benson. Thank you, Brian. Thursday, the California Supreme Court released its opinion on the narrowly passed ballot initiative that promised to speed up the state's administration of the death penalty. In an expansive and divided 120-page opinion, the court upheld much of the measure while at the same time undercutting its most prominent provision, which directed courts and the state judicial council to conclude all death penalty appeals within five years. Here to walk us through the ruling and forecast its impact on the state's administration of capital punishment is Elizabeth Semmel professor at UC Berkeley School of Law and director of the school's death penalty clinic. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Obviously, as your career has revolved uh, to a large extent around the issue of, of the death penalty, I'm sure you've been following this case closely. We chatted about it around the time oral arguments were heard. Um, so maybe to start, I'd be curious to get your kind of overall impressions of this ruling that just came down. It's an interesting one. It seems to be kind of a compromise, a bit of a splitting of the, the baby, as it were. Prop 66 is passed last November, ostensibly to expedite death penalty appeals to occur within five years, or to terminate or to finish within five years. Um, the ruling this week largely upholds Prop 66, except it, it seems to vitiate that sort of central portion of it, the five-year limit, by saying it's not necessarily mandatory. Tell me kind of how this opinion's best viewed, and it usually is sort of clear which side more substantially prevails, but it doesn't seem absolutely clear here. Well, you know, it does to me. 
it in in this sense. If you look at this strictly from the state constitutional issues, in other words, did the proponents win, that is the proponents of the initiative, win on the state constitutional issues? They did. The court found that this that the initiative is Prop 66 is constitutional. But once you get past that and look at what the court did functionally in terms of the operation of the death penalty and what the initiative proponents intended to do to the death penalty in California, I think overall it is a big loss for them. Because the core provision of Prop 66 was to speed up the decision-making by the Courts of Appeal and the California Supreme Court in their review of death penalty cases. And to do that by imposing, as you said, this overall five-year time limit and then in the lower, in the superior courts, a one- to two-year time limit. And the court soundly rejected those time limits. So that's both a, a big loss for the proponents and it is also a win, I would say, for the administration of justice in the state, which is to say the constitutional authority of courts to manage their dockets in the interest of justice. Maybe we could get into the weeds a little bit here with uh, the, the proposition. So there's a there's a lot that was packed into it. There's a lot of different provisions within it that pertain to the death penalty. The central design, obviously, is to expedite the process. But could you remind me sort of some of the specific ways in which Proposition 66 was going to speed up the, the administration of the death penalty? Right. So in addition to these expedited deadlines, baked into the proposition was this right to seek mandamus relief. That's by a way of a writ. Uh, if the five-year deadline, for example, if a court, if the court failed to meet the five-year deadline. The proposition also requires that the court, that is the California Supreme Court and the Judicial Council in specific, reevaluate the standards for the appointment of lawyers who handle appeals and habeas corpus petitions. It requires that when a habeas corpus petition uh, is filed, if it is not filed in the trial court, that is the court where the defendant was convicted and sentenced, it shall be transferred there at, unless there's a showing of good cause. It required, as I mentioned, this, these time limitations in those trial courts when habeas corpus petitions were filed there. It dictates that after that habeas corpus petition is decided in the trial court, the next le- level of review is by way of appeal to one of the courts of appeal, which is completely different than how habeas corpus petitions are handled. Now, it also exempts execution regulations from the control or governance under the Administrative Procedures Act. And I think maybe the last kind of major piece of the, of the initiative is that it changes the Habeas Corpus Resource Center. And the Habeas Corpus Resource Center, known as HCRC, is the state agency that handles the majority of habeas corpus cases that is represents clients in those cases. And it changes the governing structure, it reduces the salaries, and it limits the representation of the lawyers in that office strictly to cases in state court. Now, all of those changes, they sort of pull the rope in the same direction of expediting death penalty appeals um, with the overall goal of having them be concluded within five years. Um, but that, that last part, the overall goal, that was spelled out specifically in the proposition with pretty mandatory sounding language that such appeals shall 
be completed within that timeline, right? It wasn't sort of that well. We assume that these various changes of procedure will end up affecting um, such expeditious procedures that it will happen within five years. Uh, that last requirement was pretty specifically spelled out, right? Right, and that's the real difference between the majority opinion, in other words, the majority's reading of those timelines and the dissents. The majority reads them as to use the words of the proponents when they argued the case in the California Supreme Court as aspirational or goals or framework for understanding the intention of the initiative as opposed to mandatory. The dissent reads them according to what I would say is the plain language of the proposition and all of the publicity and prop and sorry ballot uh, mesh, sorry ballot arguments. The plain language was this is mandatory. This is shall. Well, we usually use the word shall. It. These are intended to be requirements. So the way in which that's where the, one of the fundamental, one of the two fundamental ways in which the majority of the court and the dissenting uh, justices differ. A difference uh, certainly is, is important, and the the reading of the the proposition to not be mandatory is pretty critical to the majority's upholding of it. But I was curious if you could lay out to me just how the majority gets to the the place where they are reasoning that notwithstanding this pretty mandatory language, they can read the statute to be more um, suggestive or, or directive. Well, it's important. Yeah, I, I can certainly do that. It's important to note that the majority says. If we were to read these time limits as mandatory, we would strike them down as violating the separation of powers. Because if you read them as mandatory, they would infringe on the authority of the courts to control their docket. So the court is confronted with this choice. Do we, how do we read it? Because if we read it as mandatory, we would have to strike it down. And the court then says that when the proponents of the initiative and the attorney general arguing in favor of the initiative came into oral argument. They said, as I mentioned a moment ago, that the court could read these limits as aspirational or discretionary, you know, words like that are goals, they're not mandatory. And so the court says, literally, we prefer to take the proponents at their word. We prefer to accept that when they argued it this way, when they made this concession and they used the word concession about these time limits, that that is what they meant. And so as since we can do that, since we can read them as permissive, as the court says, as directive, not required, then we can uphold the statute, uphold the initiative. And the court gives basically two reasons for doing that. The first not in this order, but the first, the court says, historically and by precedent, the court prefers to construe a statute as constitutional. In other words, and this is certainly true, courts look to uphold a law rather than strike it down and try to read a law in a way that preserves its constitutionality. So the court says, first, if we read this language as directive, then we can uphold it. The court's gives another reason, and that is that there's no effective mechanism for enforcing these time limits. Because as I mentioned a moment ago, there's this notion that somebody in the initiative is supposed to be a member of a victim's family can bring a, a writ, that is bring a, a lawsuit to, requ- to object to the fact 
that the court hasn't decided the case within five years. And the court points out that this mechanism is completely ineffectual because there isn't a single court that's responsible for complying with the five-year time limit. And the court goes into a number of other reasons. So basically, two primary reasons why the court concludes that it can uphold the constitutionality of the initiative because it can read the language as permissive. It sounded like there was also some some precedent that suggested there were or other instances or other cases where similar provisions that sounded like pretty mandatory directives were, were read more as, as suggestive. Right, exactly. So the court says, in other situations, in order to uphold the constitutionality of a statute, we've read the language as permissive, and this is a situation where we can do that as well, particularly because the drafters of the initiative are coming into court and telling us that that was their intention. Right. I thought that was interesting. I was trying to discern just how much weight the majority was, was giving to that that concession and also sort of wondering if it was a preemptive and it turns out perhaps a pretty smart hedge by that party to, to make it because, as you said, if the proposition has to stand uh, or fall based on the notion that it is requiring an absolute hard five-year deadline, uh, then the court might be less likely to, to go for it. Well, I think it's a fascinating question, to which, of course, I don't know the answer in the sense that I'm, I don't have any inside information about what Ken Scheidegger or the Attorney General or the prosecutors who supported this initiative were thinking as they were planning their briefing and their oral argument. But it is a, it's a very, very fair question. I also think it's a troubling one because, and this is what comes out, of course, in the dissent, because the dissent essentially says, that you cannot make a statute say what it does not say. And the plain language of the initiative was, we are going to speed up the review of death penalty cases by imposing strict time limits. And Justice Cuellar, in his opinion, cites, you know, example of after example of the language in the initiative and the ballot arguments, etc., to demonstrate how explicit and unmistakable the language was. So I think it's fair to say that, and the court really says this, it's not just fair to say, I think the majority says this quite explicitly, if the proponents had not come into court and given us permission, I mean, basically invited us to construe the language as permissive, we would strike it down. Yeah. One, you know, the one question is how, uh, that I have is how does, how do the proponents rationalize the fact that they argued to the public, to the voters, that they were going to accomplish something by requiring these strict time limits, and then what I would say is have the audacity to walk into court and say we didn't mean what we told the public. How exactly is the, the majority reconciling that fact? It just seemed pretty sanguine that the proposition may have appeared to most voters as providing a fairly hard cutoff based on the campaign materials. But nonetheless, the court goes ahead and says essentially, you know, we're okay with a different interpretation than the voters might have had in mind. I don't know that I can give you a satisfactory answer except to, to, you know, say again what the court says, which is we try to avoid finding statutes here in initiative, but it has the effect of a statute unconstitutional. And so we will do what we can within reason to construe a statute as constitutional. And here, the very people who drafted this initiative and 
who are the you know who are the authors of this initiative have told us that was their intention and we're going to take them at their word. And the court doesn't give more explanation than that except for the second part that I mentioned, which is this whole question of the unenforceability of this five-year limit. Justice Liu concurs, but he, he spends a good bit of time reckoning with this disconnect between what he views as the voter's intent to underline the proposition and the more flexible position proffered by the drafters and oral argument. But he says that you know the court will generally go ahead and, and assume that folks that um, vote for initiatives have full knowledge of the, the case law in California that would let the court view language that seems mandatory as as not mandatory, as, as more uh, directive or suggestive. Um, he says that's maybe a bit of a, of a leap. It might not actually be true. The voters have that sort of full information, but nonetheless, he says there's kind of a lot of water over the dam here in this context, and and so that makes the the compromise kind of reached here uh, a good or acceptable path forward. Can you talk to me a bit about uh, his opinion? Yeah, it's very interesting. What I think is particularly valuable in Justice Blue's concurrence is it's a real lesson in just how complex death penalty is in the state of California. It's really, in many ways, reads like much of the ballot arguments and the general publicity in opposition to Proposition 66, because he explains, you know, he takes the reader step by step through the number of cases, through the number of individuals who don't have lawyers, uh, the number of cases the court has the capacity to decide in a year, so that one really understands just how enormous the system is and how difficult it is for the system to sort of turn on a dime as the proponents of 66 would like and why it was simply not workable. Speaking in purely tra- pragmatic terms for the court, court, courts plural to be able to meet a five-year deadline. The other thing he, again, this to me echoes so much of the ballot arguments by the opponents focuses on is the issue of resources, which, of course, is nowhere to support Proposition 66. Nowhere do they talk about what will it cost to expedite cases in the way that 66 wanted to do. And he makes it very clear that, you know, now that these timelines are no longer mandatory, you know, what this will look like is completely contingent on what kind of resources are appropriated by the legislature. So we can talk all we want about the desire to make these cases move more quickly, but without more resources, that means both judges and lawyers, the courts are at maximum capacity. So I think that's a very important lesson or a, it's a major piece of instruction from Justice Liu. I think he, you know, I do think his goal was to try and say something which isn't really discussed by either the majority or the dissent about just how massive this system is and how practically speaking, the, you know, Prop 66 never, never addressed, it, you know, it was this kind of uh, magical thinking about the ability to change this enormous system without the infusion of a lot of money. Yeah. Reading his opinion, it, it seems to kind of echo with a pragmatic tone that 
now that the majority has said that five-year cutoff isn't absolutely mandatory, he doesn't seem terribly optimistic at the notion that uh, death penalties will necessarily be sped up all that much, e- even with the portions of Prop 66 that do now take uh, take effect. Right. And, I, you know, he talks about one concrete example is he talks about the fact that the court currently issues 20 to 25 death penalty opinions a year. And I, you know, I, I suspect that your listeners have some sense of the magnitude of those opinions, which, you know, often are, you know, 60 plus pages dealing with records that are 10, 20, 25,000 pages in length. And he goes into some detail in discussing that. So what he says in essence is that were the court to take more cases, it would do so at the expense of other litigants, of people with civil cases, of other criminal cases. So there's nothing in Proposition 66 that provides more judges. And the same is true with respect to the trial courts that are now expected to handle these habeas corpus cases. And I think that public and lawyers are very well aware of just how financially strapped the superior courts are. So as a pragmatic matter, unless there is an enormous change in resources, it is difficult to imagine how this initiative is going to change the speed at which cases move through the courts. So he just con- concurs, as, as you've touched on a bit already, Justice Cuellar is uh, much less sanguine about the, the majority's ruling than the Justice Liu and obviously the majority, um, seeming to be most hung up on the disconnect between the kind of expressed intent of the voters or what he interprets as the, the likely intent of the voters who probably viewed in his mind the, the five-year cutoff as mandatory and then the, the position put forward by the, the AG at, at oral argument. Um, is is that sort of the the principal reason why why he's not okay? Does he think that the the measure really should stand or, or fall based on on it being a, a mandatory five year cutoff? Precisely, and you know, there's a line I can't quote it exactly, but there is a line in the majority opinion where the where uh, Justice Corrigan actually says that the intent was that it be mandatory. Uh, she concedes that the language itself reads as mandatory language. It's simply what happens when oral argument occurs and the lawyers representing the proponents and the attorney general suggest that it means something otherwise. And you're right, Justice Cuellar is very focused on the plain language of the of the statute. And, you know, historically under the court's precedent, when you're con- when you're interpreting a statute, if the language is plain, right, if you can re un- understand it on its face, you don't engage in any act of interpretation by that. It's so looking to other sources to help you understand what the meaning is. And he, he's saying, you know, you can't read this language or any of the language that informed the ballot initiative anyway except as mandatory. And that what the court is doing here is rewriting the law. And it's not the job of courts to rewrite the law. It's the job of courts to apply the law. Is there is there any kind of ground to cover here in terms of just the ballot initiative process it, it itself now kind of reflecting on it after this particular ruling? Yeah, it's a big part of California law. Um, lots of very significant things are, are promulgated through that process. But, um, you know, say Justice Cuellar is right and the voters really intended there to be a five-year hard cutoff, you know, would it be the case that perhaps uh, another group would try to make a more clear a proposition next next year? I mean, uh, if if Justice Square is right that the voters' intent didn't end up kind of becoming law, then does that vitiate the process or kind of call into question the, the ballot initiative process uh, itself? 
Well, I think it does raise serious questions about the ballot initiative process. Other number of initiatives that I think have similar defects or problems. Let me respond to one point that you raised. You know, does this make it likely in some way that the proponents will come back and try to revisit this with language, you know, with some sort of limitation? I'm not a prognosticator, but I think that it's highly unlikely. One reason is that the court said if this language is understood as mandatory, we would strike it down. So I think they've been told that a redo, at least a redo that looks very, you know, a redo that's an actual redo isn't going to work. But having said that and and addressing your bigger question about the lessons, I think it's a really wonderful example, wonderful, not in a positive way, of the flaws in the initiative process in California as a whole. You know, starting with, number one, the number of initiatives voters have to consider in any given year, which, you know, it's always at least a dozen, and I believe in 2016 it was something like 19. And the difficulty of any voter to fully comprehend what they're voting for. The difficulty that is exacerbated where, as in this instance, and it happens in others, you have competing ballot initiatives, which can cause a great deal of voter confusion. You know, does yes mean yes? Does no mean no? Should I vote for both of them, etc.? And then, yes, this question of how do voters understand the language of an initiative? Do they understand it to in a literal way? You know, I would ask myself the question, did the voters really, you know, were the voters voting for an idea or were they voting for, were they voting for the specific language? In other words, were they voting for the idea that this somehow through a, a variety of means would move cases more quickly or were they actually, you know, literally voting on a five-year time limit? And this is obviously speculative, but I think the likelihood, given what voters had to contend with in reading and understanding the initiative, is that they were voting for a concept and not necessarily for the language. But that doesn't take the proponents off the hook, because the fact of the matter is, as both the majority and the dissent point out, the the voters were told in terms of the language they were reading that this would be mandatory. Even if that language isn't mandatory, which, as the court has decided, it, it is not, it, the, the concept of a faster death penalty, could that still be affected by the portions of the proposition that now will, will take effect? There's some other procedures that you've touched on that, that will now. Could that do some of the work, even if it doesn't bring the death penalty process within the aspirational five-year cutoff the proposition identified? Yeah, I'm, I'm dubious. Uh, then let me d- answer the question in two parts. With respect to how the court's Review the cases. I think the deadlines, the deadlines were the core of what the proponents intended to do, and that is lost. And so I'm dubious that there will be a significant change in the pace at which these cases operate, barring some enormous infusion of money. And I would add to that the way in which, you know, the irony that Part of the initiative is to try to dismantle the Habeas Corpus Resource Center can only make that problem, which is the problem of the pace of these cases, the slow pace of these cases, worse. Because that was the agency, that is the agency that handles most of the cases that, you know, is most responsible for the representation of these clients. And so trying to dismantle that agency 
in the ways that the initiative did seems to me enormously counterproductive. I think the intention was something altogether different. I think the proponents look at HCRC as an as effective advocates on behalf of deaf row inmates, and they wanted to do what they could to um, undermine it, and arguably they have. So in terms of the pace of these cases, I don't see, you know, never say never, I don't see that much. But there is another part, obviously important part, of the initiative that stands, but that what I don't think has been fully challenged, and that has to do with execution. So if we separate review of cases by courts from the pace of executions, those are two distinct issues. And so changing the way in which execution procedures become effective is a very significant change. And that we'll see what happens. I mean, I just think the story has yet to be written, but the potential is there by removing the requirement of public review of these regulations under the Administrative Procedures Act, the p- potential is there for speeding up execution. That's going to be my last question. If there's a next chapter or if you think this is the end of the, the road for this litigation, do you think there are any portions of this case that uh, could be either petitioned for a rehearing before the California Supreme Court or might end up in, uh, in a petition for certiorari in front of the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that question uh, in a specific way, but I know that at several points in the opinion, and I'm sure you read this as well, the court made it clear that provisions that were challenged in this initiative may be challenged in separate litigation, whether by a class or by individual individuals either charged with it, uh, sorry, capitally charged or more likely um, convicted and facing uh, review of their judgments of death. So I think there are any number of provisions that could be challenged on grounds that were not raised in this case. And ranging from the appointment of counsel in individual cases, um, in habeas corpus cases by the superior courts, to the requirement that lawyers who are on an appellate appointment list have to take death penalty cases in order to remain on the list. And then most especially, I would say, the question of the constitutional validity of whatever new execution regulations the Department of Corrections comes up with. I know uh, we uh, and and many will stay tuned then, but we'll we'll go ahead and and leave it there for now. Professor Elizabeth Semmel, Director of uh, the Death Penalty Clinic at UC Berkeley School. Uh, Thanks so much for being on the podcast to to chat about the case. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And with that, our show for August 25th, 2017 is complete. Brian Cardile, look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.